okay? So tonight, I want to start off by talking about a familiar topic, struggles. We all have struggles, right? Raise your hand if you have struggles. Everyone in the room. So it's something that we all can relate to. We all have struggles at times. Sometimes we struggle with fear. We see that today. Every time you turn on the news, it seems like everyone's afraid. We have struggles with fear, with anxiety, with the loss of family members and friends. There are many struggles we face. Sometimes the struggles are there because of sin. Sometimes there are struggles there because that's what God has ordained. But there can be dangers with struggles if handled incorrectly. If, if trials or if struggles are handled incorrectly, it can lead to a loss of intimacy with the Lord. It can lead to complacency. And it also can lead to a lack of motivation to serve Christ. Do we all agree with that? So there are also times where you and I, we might find ourselves in spiritual ruts. Anyone been in a spiritual rut? Where you just feel like you're stuck in neutral for a long time? So our goal for tonight is this. I want to share with you some biblical guidance on how we can battle through struggles and spiritual routes or ruts by emphasizing faith over fear. By emphasizing faith over fear. So what we'll be doing tonight is we'll be looking specifically at 1 Samuel chapter 7 and through what we're going to see through 1 Samuel chapter 7 is a couple of things. Number one, we're going to see the graciousness of God. And we're going to gain some biblical guidance on how to recapture your zeal in living for the Lord. Okay, so tonight's sermon title is called The Gracious God, Our Gracious God Saves Repentant Sinners. So if you have a Bible tonight, why don't you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 3 through 12. Again, that's 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 12. Um, let me give you a little bit of context before we jump in, because I'm aware that probably not everyone has read the book of Samuel. Um, if you haven't, I really encourage you to read it. It's a great book full of action and um, excitement, and also shows the great character of God and the power of God throughout this book. So I want to set a little context, though, before we get started. The time period around 1 Samuel is about 1100 B.C., which many of you know if you follow the Bible chronologically, this is right after the book of Judges. And if we are coming after the book of Judges, this means that God's chosen people are where? In the promised land. And they're in the promised land. They were led there by Joshua. But we see if we look at the book of Judges, it doesn't take the people of God very long to fall into sin. In fact, if you study the book of Judges, you'll see that there are seven distinct times where the people fall into sin. And you see when the people fall into sin that there is a cycle that happens. And a part of this cycle, it follows a four-part pattern. And you see this pattern. It happens throughout Scripture. What happens is the people of God, they what? They sin. And we see it over and over again. The people of God sin. We see this pattern throughout the Old Testament. And that is followed by what? punishment. God chastens his people either through military defeat or allowing them to be under control of foreign powers. And usually in the midst of punishment or after punishment has run its course, the people cry out to God. They plead to God that they would forgive them and he would deliver them. So, so far we talked about three distinct cycles that happen in the Old Testament. There's sin, there's punishment, and there's pleas, but every time it ends with what? Deliverance. 
God saves his people, amen? So he delivers them by sending a judge. So as we enter into 1 Samuel chapter 7, we need to understand that the people, again, are entering the cycle of sin. They sinned again. And they are experiencing the punishment of God for their sin. They're being chastened by God. But as they are in sin, God is at work doing something specific. He's raising up a new judge. And his ju- the name of this judge is Samuel. All right, so has everyone, has everyone found 1 Samuel chapter 7? If you haven't found it by now, you might just want to give up and pick up your phone. And uh, find it that way, okay? So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 12. And let's read this together. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid rid yourselves of the foreign god and the Ashtaroths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtaroths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they all assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. Verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. Feel the suspense building here? Dun, dun, dun. Here they come, right? They come to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, They were afraid because of the Philistines. Then Samuel said, Do not, excuse me, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. Him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and drew them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to point to Beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus thus far the Lord has helped us. A lot going on there. Pretty exciting stuff, though, right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we see you in your word. We see your character. We see your judgment. We see your holiness, Lord. And we see, Lord, without you, We are nothing, Lord. We need your grace, we need your mercy, and we need salvation that can only come through Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray for this time together as we look at this text, Lord, that it would give us a better understanding of you and a better understanding of us and how we can engage you, Lord, in a correct way. Thank you, Lord, for this time together and help us, Lord, to do all things for your honor and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we approach this text, I think it's very important that we see from the very beginning 
the gracious character of God. The gracious character of God. I was talking to someone this week about the doctrine of election. Anyone have that conversation? That can go either really good or it can go really bad. But a common thing that I hear from people as they try to argue against the doctrine of election is this. I don't think it's fair that God would save some people and not others. And often when I hear that specific statement or or that theory, I say, I'm surprised that God would save any of us because we all deserve hell apart from the grace of God. We all have rebelled against God at some point. So throughout scripture, we see that God is gracious towards saving undeserving sinners. Agreed? Throughout scripture, we see that God is gracious towards saving undeserving sinners. And we see this very clearly at the beginning part of 1 Samuel chapter 7. Up to this point in chapters 1 through 6, we see that the Israelites, they have hit spiritual rock bottom. They have hit spiritual rock bottom. We can see that in a number of different ways. Well, three specific, specific ways. One way we can see that the priesthood over Israel at that specific time, right before chapter 7, was very corrupt. You can learn a lot about a culture through its leaders, agreed? And so these leaders over Israel were very corrupt, and their names were Hophni and Phinehas, and they were brothers, and they were priests over the Lord, but they would do some pretty immoral things. One of the things that they did is they stole from the Lord. So when people would bring the best part of their sacrifices to the Lord at the tabernacle, what would they do? They would take it. Essentially, they stole from God. Breath. Not only that, they would threaten worshipers with force if they didn't give them what they wanted. Could you imagine coming to church and there are spiritual leaders, you walked in the door and they said, if you don't give me what you want, what I want, I'm going to take it myself. That was Hophni and Phinehas. These were the priests over Israel. Also, we see that they had sexual relations with women who worked at the tabernacle. So this place was going on. The culture of Israel is not good. They are at spiritual rock bottom. Their priests are awful. So that is one indicator that gives us a sense that Israel at this specific point in this context, they're not doing very well. But we also see that they have a fearful leader in Eli. Eli is Hophni and Phinehas' father. He's also the high priest over Israel at this specific time. But one of Eli's biggest sins is this. He does not correct his wayward children. He does not consistently correct his wayward children. And they get away with all this immoral activity. The fact is, he probably feared his children more than he feared God. Anytime we're in a specific situation where we feel a person, a place, or a thing more than we fear God, we're in deep trouble. And that was Eli. He feared his children more than he feared God. And we see very clearly in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 13, that we should not withhold discipline from our children. But we see in American culture a lot today, sadly, that a lot of men are not disciplining their children. They're not. They know that their sins specifically, that their, sin, their kids are wrestling with, but they're afraid to address that sin, becoming complacent 
and that's sinful, and that was Eli's sin. And we see later in Scripture that God punished Eli for not addressing or disciplining his children. Many men in um, society today, specifically in America, they know that their kids have problems with addiction. Many young men, young boys, adults, they're addicted to video games, and it's ruining their life. But so many times, parents are what? They're afraid to confront their, their son or daughter with that specific sin. And in that specific moment, who do they fear more than they fear God? Their children. So here we see Eli, one of the leaders over Israel. He does not fear God. He fears his children even more, and there is a dire consequence for that. So how do we know that Israel is at spiritual rock bottom? That horrible leadership. But also the culture at the time was very irreverent towards God. And we see this irreverent attitude towards God displayed in many ways. Um, specifically, if you look at the first six chapters of 1 Samuel, you'll see that the Israelites lost the Ark of the Covenant. They lost the Ark of the Covenant. And sometimes when I mention the Ark of the Covenant, there's a lot of guys in their room, their they're like, antennas go up because they think of Indiana Jones and Lost Crusaders. Like, oh, Ark of the Covenant, what is that? But if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, it's a wooden rectangular box covered with gold. And on top of this box are two angels with their wings pointing towards one another. And then inside this box is the Ten Commandments. And really what, this, what the Ark of the Covenant represents is the presence of God. It's supposed to be treated with, with sacredly, with holiness. It's supposed to be reverently respected. But we see very specifically in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4, that the Israelites are losing a battle to the Philistines. And they're losing pretty good. So what do they do in this specific situation? They bring in their good luck charm the rabbit's foot. They bring in the Ark of the Covenant. And by bringing in the Ark of the Covenant, what they're doing is they're illustrating that they don't have reverence for God, but they're trying to manipulate God to achieve their purpose. You ever do that? Try to manipulate Scripture or God to fit your purpose or your goals or your desires? That's what they were doing. And what happened, what do you think happened after they tried to use the Ark of the Covenant in that manner? It was captured. They lost it. Talking about having a bad day. Hey, how was your day? Oh, I got in a car accident. How was your day? I lost the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, man, not good. So here there's these irreverent practices that are happening in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 6, and it really gives us a mindset, a context of the spiritual rock bottom, the irreverent attitude that the Israelite people have. Also, we see that the Israelites, they're worshiping idols. This is strictly forbidden in Scripture, but yet they're doing it. But you want to hear something cool? The Ark of the Covenant is later returned to the Israelites. Well, that's pretty cool. But when it's returned, it is not returned and placed into its spot or, or proper spot, the tabernacle. But this is a pretty cool story. Is everyone familiar with this story? So after the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant to a specific place, the Temple of Dagon. Dagon was their god, and they placed the Ark of the Covenant before Dagon, showing that their god was greater than Yahweh, than the god of the Bible. And this is what happens is pretty cool. I love 1 Samuel. The things that happen are really neat. So what happens after they place the Ark of the Covenant before Dagon, guess what happens to this idol? It falls on its face. Boop. 
And so the Philistines are like, oh, bummer. Let's try this again. So they pick up this idol, this statue, put it back on its place, and guess what happens a second time? It falls over, and the head of the statue is broken off, and the hands of the statue are broken, showing specifically that God killed their God, that Yahweh was greater than their God. So they wanted to get rid of it, but they still had possession of the Ark of the Covenant. And as they had possession of the Ark of the Covenant, guess what happened to the Philistines? They got sick. They were given tumors and boils. And so at the end, when they have the Ark of the Covenant, the Philistines are saying to themselves, we don't want this anymore. It's killing our statues. It's killing our people. Have it back. And so they give it back. But, but when they receive it back, they do not treat the Ark of the Covenant in a reverential way. So the way they treat the Ark of the Covenant is indicative of their views of God. Very irreverent. Is this making sense? Or we get a sense of the culture of the people at the time. No regard for God. Almost like a lot of countries across the world today. But lastly, we see at the later part of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, we see that this irreverential attitude towards God continued for 20 years. 20 years of immoral behavior. Some of the people in this room aren't even 20 years old. Can you imagine engaging in bad practices for a span of 20 years? That's what they did. So the culture is this. Israel, up to this point, they have bad leadership and they have a bad attitude towards God. So, but, 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 in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, the people finally start to see the pain and the lost ways that they've been participating in. They start lamenting. What have we done? They start now, start mourning and showing intense grief and sorrow because they now are understanding all the evil that they have done. But how does God respond? Does he say too little, too late? Does he laugh and say, look, you guys are awful. There's no way I'm taking you back. You're on your own. No, 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 no. He gives them direction on how to return back to him. So by giving them yet another chance, we see something very important about God. We see his character, that he's just, he's holy, but he's also gracious, and he's also, also merciful. Do we see that here? Who would give the Israelites another chance? Okay, gracious group of people. We want it, but God does. And it shows you how gracious God is that he's still working with these people. And that's very important because there's a lot of people that I talk to who will say something like this. It's too late for me to start following Jesus. It is not. We serve a gracious, holy God. While you still have breath, there is still time to follow Jesus. So is there someone in this room who has not placed their faith in Christ? Follow our gracious Savior. Today is the day of salvation. He is patient and kind. We see it very clearly here. So we also see that God, despite their bad behavior, is willing to pour out new mercies on these people. He's willing to pour out new mercies despite their bad behavior. What a great God that we serve, that he's willing to still give us new mercies despite our bad behavior at times. So this is the main point I think is important for us to write this down. As we consider 1 Samuel chapter 7, and we see the horrible culture of the people, and that God is willing to be gracious towards them, this is an important point. 
and you should, we should write this down, is our gracious God is continuously willing to give new mercies. We see that here, right, in the text. Bad people, but yet God is merciful with them. He's even merciful to lifelong sinners. We see this in the text. So let's jump back into the text real quick. Let's jump back into verse 3. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and asteroids and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and their asteroids and served the Lord only. We see here in these passages that Samuel provides guidance and direction on how they can restore their relationship with God. And this guidance is very applicable to them, and it's also very applicable to us. And you'll notice the first thing that Samuel emphasizes is that coming to God is a serious commitment. That coming to God is a serious commitment. You see in um, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, he says, If you are returning to God with what? All your heart. That sounds like a pretty big commitment. So basically, he sees them crying and lamenting. But he's like, well, if your crying and lamenting is serious, let me give you some instruction to see how serious you are. This is not a passive exercise, he's following God. It's a serious exercise. So Samuel is basically saying, if your lamenting is genuine, let me give you some instruction. If you really feel bad about your sin, let me see it. And this is very similar to how Jesus engages some of the early disciples. If you remember specifically in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38, Jesus says this very clearly. He says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Samuel is teaching them this. True life change involves both an emotional response and a physical response. True life change involves aligning your hands with your emotions towards God. Your emotions towards God play out in what you do with your life. Pastor Scott, I love this saying. I learned it from him. He says, a saved life is a changed life. And we see that's part of the instruction that Samuel is giving the Israelites right now. If you're truly, truly serious about what you're doing, let's see if you are committed. So main point number three is this. Returning to God also involves taking action to remove false gods. Did you see that in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3? He says, this is what Samuel says, remove the foreign gods from among you. This is an imperative. If you don't know what imperative is, it's a command. And actually, it's the first command that is given in this specific section of Scripture. And he is saying this, Samuel is saying, there can be no internal debate 
about who the Lord is over your heart. In order to follow me, your heart cannot be divided. You must see the worthiness of God and be divided to him alone. He's basically saying, it's either me or it's them. It can't be both. And sometimes I think people in our society today try to have both. A little bit of world today, a little bit of God tomorrow. A little bit of sin today, a little bit of godliness tomorrow. But Samuel is saying, no, you must be devoted to me with all your heart. Your heart can't be divided between two different worlds. You either love me, you're either for me, or you're against me. We see Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or any other idol. So it's very important that we see the worthiness of Christ in our life. I know a lot of you in this room have special people in your life who've done a lot of great things in your life. My dad's done a lot of amazing things in my life. I'm so grateful for him, my mom, my family. But Jesus, dear friends, left heaven where there's angels and no sin Heaven. Just think about heaven and being there and leaving there and coming here and turning on Fox News. What did I do? Can I go back? Get me out of here, right? Jesus did this. He left there and came to this world where they're worshiping false gods. Idolatry is everywhere. And he laid his life down, was beaten, whipped, spat upon, humiliated, and cursed, died on a cross, was resurrected, and said, I can give you abundant life. Follow me. Can your heart be divided? If we meditate on that and realize that reality, that Jesus did that for us, we need to be all in for Christ. Nothing else can compare to Christ. Not a false god, not idolatry, not a sport, not my kids, nothing. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you understand who I am, you got to be devoted. He's worthy, amen, and trustworthy. So we see, also notice, that this information, this guidance that Samuel is giving the people, he's really giving them scripture. This is not new information. Do not serve false gods. Moses made this very clearly. It's the first commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. He says, you shall have no other gods, no other gods. What were their gods? We know if we study this section of scripture, there was two primary gods that the Canaanites and specifically the Israelites were worshiping at this time. And one of them was, was Baal. And I want you to remember this because we're going to see it later in the text that Baal is believed by those people to be the sky god. He controls the storm. That's going to be important later. So remember that. Baal controls the storm. But also another one of their gods is the Ashtaroth, which is a companion of Baal. This is the goddess of love, fertility, and war. Wow, both ends of the spectrum there, love and war. <laughs> worshipped in, um, is, This god was worshipped in various forms. Um, remember, the Canaanite religion was essentially a fertility cult. So every year when the crops of Israel were doing good, they attributed the success of the crops to these specific gods. Thank you so much for the rain. Thank you so much for the harvest. And then they would go and worship them. Worshiping back then, though, for this specific culture, isn't just saying, thank you, I owe you one. It's going to a sex temple and expressing worship in that manner 
with other people. That's pretty depraved, right? So it's not just a passive activity. It's really engaging in immoral living. And that's what they were doing, even though God made it clear not to do it. So it's not like they just kind of fell into sin. They full on like jumped in and were swimming. Like, this is some bad stuff, right? Okay, thank you for the laugh up front. But what of our gods? It's very easy for us to say, oh, look at them. Tis, 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 worshiping gods, the wrong gods. But does this happen to us? In American culture, are there false gods that are battling with our hearts? And I would say a lot of the times the answer is yes. They just take different manifestations in our life. Specifically, and this is a good question to ask yourself, are there no-fly zones in my heart? Does everyone know what a no-fly zone is? If you're in modern warfare today, if two enemies are engaging one another and one person wins, they establish a no-fly zone where airplanes aren't allowed to fly. You're not allowed to go there. So as we think about no-fly zones over our hearts, are there specific areas of our heart where we tell God, I'll give you all my heart, but just not that. That's a no-fly zone over my heart. So I think you and I and all of us should be honest with one another. Are there no-fly zones over my heart? And if there are no-fly zones, guess what I'm doing? I'm drifting away from God. There's competition for my heart. And I'm allowing that area, that sin, that idol to win or gain traction over my heart. And Samuel's saying, don't do that. Get rid of these false gods. And in modern day gods or no-fly zones, they manifest today in a lot of different ways. One of them, one of the gods that I see very regularly, specifically in American culture, is comfort. God, you can have it all, but just don't make me uncomfortable don't make me talk to someone about Jesus. It make, make, get me nervous. So I will follow you, God. I will come to church on Sunday, but I will do not want to become uncomfortable. What is comfort in that specific situation? It's a idol. I'm willing to keep that fly zone. I don't want to be obedient in that specific area. Also, we see a specific God in our culture or not a no-fly zone. It's complacency, laziness. It's getting to us in a lot of trouble. Also, um, I would say entertainment is an idol. Lord, I'll come to church on Sunday. Just don't take away my phone and my Facebook and my Twitter account because I don't know what I'm going to do. They spend more time on those specific devices than they do worshiping God, meditating God, and serving others. If we're spending more time doing entertainment than we are serving God, there could be a problem. And that's between you and the Lord. But my job for tonight is to help us identify, are there specific gods that are competing for my heart right now? Because the Bible tells us in Proverbs 4.23, it says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We need to guard this, because everything is competing for it, for it from entertainment, even your children. Some people worship their children more than they worship God. That's a problem. Agreed? Do we see this? Yes. So, in terms of this specific context, Samuel is giving them some very specific instruction. If you truly want to follow me, you have to see the worthiness of God, the trustworthiness of God, and get rid of those competing idols. That's what we'll see if your faith is genuine. Also, another main point, I think we should write this down, is this. Returning to God involves heartfelt obedience. 
Notice in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, he says this. Direct your hearts towards the Lord and dedicate yourselves to the Lord. In the Hebrew, this literally can be translated to say, make firm your hearts to the Lord. You'll see consistently throughout Scripture that love and obedience, they're travel buddies. If you love God, you'll obey God. Right? And we see this very clearly in Deuteronomy with the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses um, 4 through 6. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. There's a connection there with love and obedience. Jesus makes this very clear in John 14, 15. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Also, we see in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So what, what Samuel is telling them is direct your hearts towards the Lord and dedicate yourselves to serving them. Love and obedience travel together throughout scripture. And there's also a loving commitment to walk forward in this. Listen, I'm lovingly committed to continuously serving my wife and kids because I love them. I desire to do that because of who they are and what they do in our relationship, right? So it's the same thing with our relationship with God. Do I love God enough where I'm willing to serve him? And if you're not willing to serve him, you might have to ask yourself, do I really love God? It's like me saying, I really love my wife, but I'm not spending any time with her. Sounds like a counseling session. I really love my kids, but I haven't seen them in like two weeks, and it's been awesome. Right? So we see at first, that kind of catches us off guard when we say love and obedience are linked. But throughout Scripture, we see that they are linked. You can tell what your affections are by how you spend your time. So Samuel is telling them, if you love me, direct yourselves towards the Lord. Do we see that clearly? Yeah? Okay, good. Also, we see Apostle Paul emphasizing this in terms of being diligent. Um, Paul says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. He says, Now for this very reason also apply all diligence in your faith. Be serious about being obedient to me. It's just not a passive exercise, but be diligent. And being diligent in terms of being obedient and in my personal opinion, it's almost having a game plan on how you're going to engage sin before it happens. If I'm being diligent, that means I have a plan on how I'm going to battle sin. Agreed? So back then, in this specific culture, if one of their friends invited them to the temple, I've already decided beforehand, I'm not going. For my kids specifically, we know that there will be a time, we have four boys, where one of their peers will present a phone with an explicit image on it to them. We know this will likely happen. So being diligent in terms of being faithful, we have a game plan on how we're going to interact with that. Number one, we're going to turn away, we're going to walk away, and we're going to find something else to do. So if you're being diligent in fighting sin in our life and being obedient, we anticipate it's going to happen and we have a plan to counter it. For example, if you're not a patient person with your spouse, that person sometimes just really rubs me the wrong way. If I know that is a sin that I'm struggling with, 
I have a game plan so when I am unpatient with that specific person, I know how I'm going to respond. I'm not going to cave into sin. Instead, I'm going to stop, I'm going to pray, and I'm not going to engage in sin. So if we are committed to holy living like Samuel's telling us to do, it's having a plan beforehand to how to combat sin in our lives. Does that make sense? Yes, okay. All right, so let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. He says this, Rid yourselves of the foreign gods. That means repent, get away from them. And commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. So Samuel is giving specific guidance here in verse 3. He's saying, get rid of it, but replace it with something else. Anytime we repent in life, we have to replace it with something else. Repent your love for an idol, turn away from your love for an idol, and turn your love and affection towards who? God. Stop doing this. Do this instead. Stop thinking about cheesecake. Go exercise. You know, it's always a repent and replace activity that happens throughout Scripture. And we see this throughout Scripture, too. We see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, this is what the Bible says. That in reference of your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Get rid of that. And if you go down to verse 24, he says, put on the new self. So what, what Samuel is saying here is replace the bad habits of worshiping idols and replace them with something better, the true and living God. Paul is telling us, take off the old self, put on the new self. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul continuously tells us to direct your thinking towards good things, not bad things. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul tells us again to renew your mind. Stop thinking about the bad things and think about good things. Stop thinking about sin all the time and think about the mercies and love of God. Two different things. And we see this very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Paul tells us to take captive every thought. If I'm battling with what's going on in my mind, I'm taking captive the bad thoughts, I'm getting rid of it, and I'm putting on new ones. And this is our next main point. I want to transition into this. This is main point, another main point. I think you should write this down. As we return to God, as we're getting rid of the bad and putting on the new and showing our love for Christ and our love for God, as we return to God, as we commune with God, do not, do not forget the importance of prayer. Do you see that in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 5? Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Samuel sees the importance of prayer. In the light of spiritual warfare, and this is physical and spiritual warfare, what we see happening right here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, he said, In the midst of all this, do not forget to pray. You and I are in a spiritual warfare every day over our hearts, over our minds, over our behavior. What do we need to do? Thank you, Samir. Pray. And we see this very clearly. Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, he woke up early in the morning to do what? Pray. We see it also again in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, that Jesus woke up early in the morning to pray. If Jesus is praying, if it's good enough for him, Good enough for me, right? If Jesus is praying, I should follow his example. Also, we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul tells us to do what? Pray without ceasing. That means as I'm engaging in a difficult path, I'm like, Lord, help me get through this. 
Lord, as I'm witnessing to this person, help me say the right words. Help you increase, help me decrease. Lord, give me good thinking right now. All day long, I see the spiritual warfare at play, and I'm leaning on God's guidance and his spirit to help me in that specific battle. Do not forget to pray. That's the advice of Samuel. That's the advice of Jesus. That is the advice of the word of God. So up to this point, just a quick summary before we move on, is this. If you face challenges in life, if you are going through a spiritual route, remember the graciousness of God. He's willing to give new mercies every day. He gave new mercies to them. He's willing to give new mercies to you, to his faithful people. Also, let the love of God compel you to take action, remove idols from your life, and replace them with worshipful living. We see that direction and guidance from Samuel, do we not? Yeah? Okay. So let's move on. Let's go into 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. And this is when it gets really exciting, so buckle up. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. They gathered to Mizpah, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Hmm. Why, this is unique right here. Why is there drawing and pouring out water? This is the only instance in the Bible where the nation of Israel participates in this specific exercise. And some people know the answer, some people don't, but there's some really good, I think, suggestions in terms of what this really means. And I think that this specific commentator, he gives some really good guidance on what this means. This is what he says the pouring out of water is indicative of. He says this, that Israel's symbolic confession that the Lord's favor was more important to them than life-sustaining water. So the throwing out of water by participating in that act, according to the study of this commentator, means that God's favor was more important than water. Wow. Can we say that? Lord, your favor is more important than water, life-sustaining water. What a huge statement that they're making in this specific time. Also, this throwing out of water affirms that they're really genuine in repentance. We mean it, God. We know we've been awful, but we're in it with you now. We're going to have faith, okay? Also, notice that they fasted and they confessed. When you fast, what are we doing? We're focusing intently on God. We're abstaining from a specific activity, perhaps eating food. And every time I get hungry, what am I doing instead? I'm thinking about God. So fasting is an intentional focus on God and perhaps of sin and helping you overcome that sin. So the people right here, as they're fasting, what are they doing? They're directing their behavior and their thoughts towards God. But also they're confessing. He's, they're confessing specifically to who? To God. So every time we sin, this is very important for all of us to remember, that every time we sin against a specific person, we actually sin against two different people. If I were to sin against him, I sin against him, I need to confess to him. But as I sin against him, who else did I sin against? God. 
So sin isn't just a passive thing. I sin against a specific party and God himself. And the, the Israelites are seeing this here. So they're saying, we're focusing our attention towards God by fasting, but we're also confessing. We're taking ownership for our bad behavior. And that's what we were doing when we confess. We're taking ownership of our bad behavior. I remember doing a marriage counseling session not too long ago, and I asked one of the specific parties, like, when was the last time you took, or when's the last time you confessed to your wife? Oh, it's been years. Oh my goodness, you haven't taken responsibility for any bad behavior in years? No. Well, there you go. There's the problem. Let's start confessing because when you confess, you're showing your love towards God and your love towards that person. But also confessing is very freeing. Is it not? This is what 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What great joy in knowing that, right? So when I sin... The blood of Christ covers that. Praise the Lord. That gives counsel to my soul, comfort to my soul, to know when I confess that it's taken care of by the living God. But also when you confess, it allows us to move forward with that specific person. If I sin against Kay and I confess to her, she forgives me, guess what? We can move on living life together. When I sin against God, I confess, and we move on living life together. This is what Proverbs 28, 13 says. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. So when we confess, just saying sorry is a good start, but we need to say sorry to the person and to God and admit specifically what you did and accept the consequences for it. That's a genuine confession that shows love to that person and towards God. So in the midst of all this too, and this is my next point, and we're going to see this develop in the next couple verses, that in the midst of churning, repenting, and living towards God, we can always trust God. Write that down. We can always trust God. No matter what happens in the world around us, we can trust God. And we see this play out specifically in verses 7 through 11. And, and I'm, I'm going to read this one more time, because if you're like me, in order for me to get stuff, i got to read it a couple times. Especially like a narrative, you're like, what happened, huh? So I'm going to read this one more time, but I'm going to emphasize some really good points so that it really solidifies in our brain. So bear with me. So let's go back to verse 7. And it says this. This is what the Word of God says. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Then they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. When Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But, the day, but that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Philistines, or excuse me, before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, pursuing them excuse me, slaughtering them along the way to the point below Beth Car. So what is happening here? A lot of information. So what is happening is this. They're going up to this mountain, and they're lamenting. 
Lord, we are sorry. They're putting off their bad behavior. They're putting on their good behavior. They're sacrificing to God. And every time I try to do something good, something bad happens. And here come the Philistines out of nowhere. As they're trying to return to God, something bad happens. But why are they doing this? Why are the Philistines coming up at this specific point? Typically in the ancient world, any time you had a big celebration or a festival that did not happen on a specific festival day, it was seen as preparation for war. So here they are, they're just confessing and repenting, trying to restore their relationship with God. The Philistines are thinking, oh, they're going to come soon. And so like, well, let's get them before they get us. And so now they start preparing for war. And as they're coming up the mountain, what are the Philistines, what are the Israelites doing? They're afraid. But let me, before we get to that point, I want to remind you, most, a lot of times, the Christian life after obedience, sometimes does come hardship. I see this in the lives of new Christians all the time. I just trusted Jesus. I'm getting baptized. Yes. Then something crazy happens. But God is faithful to see that person through it. And we're going to see momentarily, even though they're following God, trouble's happening. Guess what? God's going to see them through here in a second. And that's our life. And we see it a lot. We see it in the Middle East a lot. When young people or older people from Middle Eastern descent confess Christ in that culture, guess what happens shortly after? The thunder, right? So this is not unusual to the Christian life. In fact, you should expect it. That if you love Christ, guess what? The world's going to hate you. Let's see. This is what John chapter 15, verse 20 says. It says, remember the word that I say to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. So Jesus tells us this will happen. But how do the Israelites respond in this specific situation? First, they respond with fear. But you'll notice there's also an element of what? Faith. Do you see it? As they're praying, as they're confessing, guess who's getting closer and closer and closer? The Philistines. Could you imagine? You're on the top of a hill, of a mountain. You're praying to God. You're sacrificing. And your only weapon at this time is what? Prayer. And if your only thing you're doing at that specific moment is praying, what are you illustrating? Your faith. They knew in that specific moment the only weapon they had was what? Prayer. And listen, fear is very common. Fear is a very common paralyzing emotion, is it not? It's paralyzed our country right now, right? So fear is a very common paralyzing emotion. But back then and even now, but listen, and this is very important. I put an asterisk next to this in my notes. But with God's help, we can overcome fear with faith. With God's help, we can overcome fear with what? Faith. Thank you. So remember, trusting God means being willing to accept the outcome before you know what it is. Were they willing to trust the outcome before they knew what it was? Yes. What does that mean? They're people of faith. So let's go back to the text. Specifically, let's look at verse 10 together. They're crying out to the Lord. They're getting closer. They're getting closer. Then in verse 10, it says this. But that day, don't you like that? 
uh, Kay and Kay were, and I we were talking before the service, and we're like, we love 1 Samuel because there's so many cool events that God does in this book. So you see the Philistines coming up, the people are praying, they're making sacrifices, and then we get into verse 10, it says, but that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines. Who was the God of thunder back then? Baal. <laughs> so what's God show up doing? With thunder. And back then, anytime there was lightning or thunder in a specific battle, it showed that God is showing up. They knew that something supernatural was happening. In this specific instance, the Philistines, guess what? They knew something supernatural was going down. Why? Guess where the fear got transferred from? From the Israelites to the Philistines, it says, very, it says here that they rushed out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines. They were overtaken with confusion. Whose God is bringing down the thunder? It's not our God. It's their God. And then God delivered them from them. So listen, the main point is this, that God fought on their behalf. Listen, through Christ Jesus, through faith in him, he fought on our behalf. He took the punishment that we deserve. That should motivate us to serve him, right? So here specifically, imagine yourself. You're on a mountain. They're coming. You're praying. And the thunder happens. And then you turn around and you're chasing them down the mountain. Talking about a cool day, right? Who would enjoy that day? And so what they do after such a miraculous event, what do they do next? If you go to verse 12, they put, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. This is a very important point, and I think we all should write this one down. We should always remember the works of God. We should always remember the works of God. Would you want to remember this day? Are there other miraculous things that are happening in your life that we ought to remember? I have at home, we keep photo albums, and... There are some pictures in there. Because remember, I have not always been a Christian. So I tell my friends there's pre-Jesus Bobby and there's post-Jesus Bobby. But we have old photo albums in our house. So there are some pictures of pre-Jesus Bobby. They're in there. But I leave them in there for a reason. Not to glorify that specific life, but to remember what God did in my life. Those were the passions and desires of my heart. No more. I went from that what am I doing up here? How did this happen? Only the power of God. So you and I, we can do similar things. You don't have to set up a stone shrine, but you can have a photo album at home celebrating what God has done in your life. And you can explain it to your kids. You see dad acting like a fool right there? Know what changed the fool that you call dad? The power of God. And you can celebrate that with your kids. So I encourage you, if you have memories, write them down. Collect a photo album, share them with your kids. Write down specific events where God showed up. Everyone in this room, if you are saved, God showed up in a significant way in your life. You should be willing to talk about that on an ongoing basis with your kids and with your family, and you celebrate that. Also, we have another photo, another photo in our photo album at home. It's of, of my father-in-law on the day of his baptism. So every time you're looking through cool baby pictures and things like that, all of a sudden you see a picture of my father-in-law being baptized or shortly after his baptism when he was about 50. But I leave that in there too. Why? Because he's 50 when he was baptized. It's never too late for us to walk in obedience to the Lord. 
whether you're 10, 15, 180, you can walk in obedience and we can celebrate what God did in his life and in our lives together. So what's happening here specifically in verse 12, God did something awesome. And they're being intentional in terms of setting up a game plan to remember it. God's done some amazing stuff. So I, I challenge you, if you have a piece of paper tonight or tomorrow morning over some coffee, write down all the remarkable things God has done in your life. And if you're a believer, the first thing on your list should be what? Salvation. All of you, if you're a believer in this room, you were dead at one point, And then God gave you life gave you life. What a great thing to remember. Also, you can write down specific events. Man, even your kids. Man, my God, give me this kid. It's amazing. I love this kid. There's so many great things that God is doing in our life. We need to write them down and celebrate them. Isn't that what Jesus said at the Last Supper? He said, do this in remembrance of me. Take bread and remember what I've done. You and I, just like they're doing here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, they're remembering the acts of the Lord. Guess what? We should do it too. So Jesus wants us to remember and celebrate him. Well, I got worked up tonight. Is that a good passage? Pretty eventful, a lot of exciting things, going up hills and fighting. But we also see the plan of God in our life. If we are dealing with a struggle or going through a trial, Scripture gives us guidance on how to revitalize our life. First and foremost, it's confessing and getting rid of the old and putting on the new. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I love God. And God fights for his people. He helps sanctify us. He helps us become more like Christ. And that's something that we should celebrate. So remember this, that God is faithful to his people. And we have seen this demonstrated through thousands and thousands of years. God has demonstrated his faithfulness over thousands and thousands of years. And he's demonstrated his faithfulness to you by saving you. And listen, this is so helpful because this will help us in overcoming fear with faith. God sustained his people in the past. He's doing it now, and he will do it in the future. God is a mighty, gracious God. Amen? All right, let's pray, and let's be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much for your word and how it applies to our hearts, Lord. And specifically, how instruction that you gave to Samuel a thousand years ago, Lord, still applies to us. We still see at times, Lord, how there are idols, that there are no fly zones in your, our hearts. But yet, through the power of God and through your Spirit, Lord, you help us see these things. And help us, Lord, to turn from them. Help us to confess sin and repent from sin and replace it with godly living. And Lord, when you do that in our lives, help us to remember it. Help us to celebrate everything that you're doing in our lives each and every day, Lord. You're sustaining us, giving us oxygen, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, Lord. You've given us the ability to tell other people about Jesus. What a great thing, Lord. Help us to celebrate those things, Lord. And help us not to be paralyzed by fear, but be a faithful people that loves you, trusts you, and sees you as infinitely worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.